When a bullet flies and a child dies, can we overcome? Can we overcome? I mean, Jesus is in West Mosul right now, trapped under ISIS control with airstrikes falling from above with his leg trapped underneath a big pile of rubble sending me tweets saying there's 90 people trapped in this house and we can't get out please send someone to save us that was jeremy courtney answering the question where is jesus to be found in the middle of pain and suffering jeremy and his wife jessica and their two small kids moved to iraq in 2006 in the middle of the Iraq war, and they founded the Preemptive Love Coalition, which brings relief to families fleeing war in Syria and Iraq. They help refugees rebuild their lives, and they provide life-saving medical care for children in conflict zones. You can find out more about the Preemptive Love Coalition by going to preemptivelove.org, and please enjoy the rest of this conversation that I had with Jeremy. It was so encouraging and so challenging. Jeremy, thanks so much uh, for being on the podcast. I've been looking forward to this for a real long time. Uh, And so I'm just going to dive right in. You and Jessica and your two kids, Emma and Micah, decided to move to Iraq in the middle of the Iraq war about 10 years ago or so. Uh, and so please describe that process. Well, first of all, let's, let's give props for the fact that you said Iraq correctly. And, uh, <laughs> did, I, what do you mean? Iraq? I, Iraq? Yeah. I mean, I normally have to lead with Iraq and then I, <laughs> and then every time after that, I say it, Iraq properly, but yeah. anyway, so good job on that. Oh, thanks. But yeah, man, we, we moved in the middle of the Iraq war just, um, compelled by the the suffering that we were seeing on the headline news like like everyone else you know uh, only the different thing about the Iraq war I guess compared to some other conflicts and and suffering that we see on our evening news is that it was also our brothers and sisters and sons and daughters and cousins and neighbors who were caught up in the violence and so we were I mean, on the one hand, we were drawn into this conflict because we had a vested interest in it. I mean, these were these were not just those people over there suffering. These were our people somehow implicated in the violence. And and that had a massive implication for how we understood the story, told the story, all that kind of stuff. Um, So I think I think we and the world were paying attention to Iraq in a in a unique way just because uh, it it had become such an important part of our country's story. Yeah. Yeah. It was a real, it was, it was really clear. Unlike how some things aren't maybe right now that this is us. Um, I mean, it always is us, right. But, but, um, in a real clear way, it, it, it was us. So, so you were seeing that and then you and Jessica must've had some crazy conversations. I mean, I just, I can't, I can I can't even imagine, uh, sitting down and, and, and sort of talking about, well, we need to go there. So, I mean, how did that go? Well, I think the harder decision had already been undertaken, which was to move into that general part of the world after 9-11. Right. That, that was scarier in many ways than moving into Iraq, because if, if you remember what it was like on September 12th, 2001, I mean we weren't talking about Muslims two days before. And it's like, we haven't stopped talking about Muslims and yep. terrorism and extremism and our place in it and all that kind of stuff. And so the harder decision I think for us was as a very young married couple, just months married to start the journey toward the middle East, uh, in the, from, from the rubble and ashes of nine 11. Yes. And once we crossed that Rubicon and counted the cost as it were to, embark on that kind of life. Uh, the step from Central Asia, where we were, like kind of just the greater Middle East type areas where we were, into Iraq proper, into the war, uh, that that wasn't as hard, actually, as yeah. moving to a Muslim country after 9-11. Wow. That's fascinating. And I mean, it makes sense when you say it. 
Uh, it makes sense a lot when you say it, but that's a fascinating um, distinction. And you kind of write about in the book that Jessica is was was kind of the mover and shaker in some of that. Is that? Um, tell me a little bit about Jessica. Yeah, so I mean, we were already living in uh, Turkey prior to Iraq. That was that was the country that we moved to, which is by all accounts, especially at that time, uh, a very modern. Uh, democratic Muslim country. Yeah. But I think for us and certainly for many of our friends and family and, and whatever, it, it was tantamount to moving into Taliban territory. Yeah. Uh, so, so it was from Turkey that we, that I, I took a couple of scouting trips into Iraq and just, just moved by, by the violence and the, the bloodletting that was going on across the country in 2000 six and middle of the war time before we surged a bunch of new troops into the area. And so I'm in Iraq and I'm doing this scouting trip for a couple of days. You know, it's like you going under, you know, like going completely under, there's no comms. I don't have any way to really communicate with Jessica. And so I do that for a couple of days and it's, it's intense, you know, I mean, it's, uh, I, I meet my contact on the ground in Iraq, and the first thing he does is duck me into the back of a bulletproof car, which I'd never even seen before. <laughs> oh my um, gosh! Throws a flak jacket over my over my chest, which I didn't even know they were called flak jackets. I, yeah. You know, I, all that kind of stuff. Everything was just completely new to me. I had no idea what I was getting myself into. And you know, we're in one of the most hot spots of the country in some ways suicide bombs going off and there's snipers on the roof. And, um, I'm just like, this is insane. There's no way I can move my family to this war zone. But then he would introduce me to his friends and it, it ceased to be a war, like this kind of amorphous, uh, idea. It, it started to be about people. Um, it's, I started to have names and faces and stories and backgrounds to go with the war to, to kind of redefine Iraq in terms of its people, not just its its most incendiary kind of salacious headline right. news bits. And, and once Iraq started to be defined by something other than, than pure violence, once I started knowing people's stories who were caught up in it and understood their hopes and their aspirations and the journeys that they were on, um, I would sit in those meetings and drink down those cups of sugary tea and be yeah. like, man, this is amazing. We have to move our family here. We have to be a part of it. And so it was this constant juxtaposition between sitting in a 125 degree boiling living room with no electricity on in the middle of summer and, and listening to people's stories and thinking, we have to be here. This is amazing. And then stepping out into the the summer sun with bombs on the horizon and snipers on the roof and, and thinking, I can't do this. This is insane. And so, yeah, I went back to Istanbul, met up with my wife in the middle of the night. She and a couple of friends were in the living room and she said, so you've, you know, you've been out of touch for days. What have you seen? What was it like? And I just relayed those kind of stories to her and said it was amazing and it was impossible and there's no way we can move there. And she said, well, thank you for your trip report. We've been praying while you've been away and we're moving to Iraq. And she just had this, I think, this beautiful combination of utter naivete uh, and complete confidence that come what may, it was all going to be worth it. Wow. I love how you say that, too. It was all going to be worth it. Like you didn't say, come what may, it was all going to be okay. <laughs> you know, come what mm. may, it was all going to be worth it. That's fascinating. Uh, wow. <laughs> I love, well, I like your trip report. <laughs> <laughs> that is yeah. Beautiful. So she does not suffer fools when we end up in uh, meeting places or conferences together. And yeah. she gets that kind of pandering Oh, you must be the wife type, uh, right. Type of, uh, you know, pat on the back or whatever. Yeah. She's like, let, let me tell you, I'm the one who led the charge into, into the war zone, you know? Yes. Yes. Well, that comes clear in your writing, which is why I asked. And so, um, 
I, you know, uh, I really wanted to hear about that because it's, it's never all caricatured. Like there's one super hard charging hero and, and one, you know, mousy. I mean, it's just, that's just not how life is. And so it, it's mm-hmm. really encouraging to uh, get a little window into who she is. So uh, you moved to Iraq and one of the stories you told, I mean, it's really a seminal story uh, that, that got you going into the heart surgery area, but you were, I think you were sitting having, having tea in this hotel lobby and this guy came up to you, his father came up to you and his daughter was dying and he told you about it and he asked you to help. And that started you guys on a journey, um, that was sort of the beginning stages of what you were going to do in Iraq. So can you tell that story? Cause it's, to, to me, it's fascinating. Yeah. So I'm, I mean, I'm a couple months into the, the life in Iraq. We ended up moving in with uh, another aid and development organization that I had met along the way. I didn't have any substantive relationship with them, and and they didn't with me. Um, So it was just a job. You know, we were just trying each other out, hoping it would work. And I I didn't have an office per se, so I would go to the one of the major hotels in town that was owned by one of the political parties and safely ensconced behind the concrete bomb blast walls, I would tuck into the cafe and I would sit there with journalists and diplomats and business people and oil barons and you know, all these various kinds of players who come into a war zone uh, and, and look for opportunity, whether that's to help people or to help rebuild or to you know make a buck or whatever. And that was my office, was this cafe. Wow. So I, I started developing a relationship through my very limited language with the local chai guy. And one day he kind of saddles up to the table, sets my tea down and looms awkwardly over my shoulder for a minute rather than just going away like he's supposed to. And he gets up the nerve to ask me, um, you know, Mr. Jeremy, you've been coming here for a while now. Can I ask a favor? And I said, absolutely. And he held his hand, you know, about yay high off the ground and said, I have this little cousin. She's about this big now. But when she was born, she was born with this huge hole in her heart. And after all these decades of dictatorship and sanctions against Iraq and war and now Al Qaeda targeting our doctors and our nurses, there's not anyone left to save her life. You're an American uh, you're a Christian, you know, whatever. We've talked about these things. I know you came here to help us. Um, would you please help my cousin? Like, not just us as a people, but help yeah. us as a family. And I mean, it was really awkward, um, messy, because I didn't know anything about this kind of stuff. It was so far outside of the realm of what we did as an organization. I was a peon. We had, I had no authority. And how, you know, how old were you at that point, Jeremy? I mean, just, just for context. Uh, I must've been 26, 27. Right. I mean, so it's like, oh my gosh. Right. I mean, you're a 26, 27 year old dude trying to figure out a way in the world. This guy says, ah, it's just, I mean, oh my gosh, I knew nothing when I was 26. I know nothing now, but anyway, that, that's just context. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And, and I, I mean, I, I, I genuinely tried as hard as I could to hold this guy at arm's length. Uh, you know, sometimes these stories get retold and I'm probably guilty of it myself. There's a way to come off as a hero in this story. But the truth is I, I tried to push him away. I tried <laughs> yeah, to reject yeah. him, you know, yeah. I tried to reject this little girl and he was just very winsome and kind of got Got my guard down, my defenses mm. down. He didn't attack me. Um, he gave me kind of a way to save face, to to kind of use um, that that rubric that we kind of talk about here sometimes. Um, he basically said, "You you can try and fail. It's okay. Yeah. You know, like she's she's already dead. Basically, she's yeah. she's a ticking time bomb, and we just need help for her. So if you would just try, it's okay if you fail. And that was such a such a grace, such a gift to. Yeah to be told by someone w- with their loved one whose life hangs in the balance, you can try and fail. It's okay. But by God, try. And, um, so we did, we tried and ended up meeting with cousin dad a couple of days later. 
And when cousin dad comes into the cafe at the hotel, he's got his little girl on his arm and she sits down across the table from me and starts coloring on a napkin while he and I haggle over this medical report, trying to understand and explain what it says. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know any better these two days on how to, how to help their, yeah. their little girl. But I agreed to just take the file and make a few phone calls and knock on a few doors and see if we knew somebody who did. And I think it was the first or second phone call. I found help on the other end of the line and we were kind of off to the races. And, and so then over the next couple of days and weeks and months, people just started coming out of the woodwork, thrusting their babies in our face, showing up on my front doorstep in taxis, calling my private cell phone, you know, with some version of the story of, hello, mister, I hear that <laughs> yeah. you are helping kids <laughs> with, who, who need these life-saving surgeries. Here's my baby. Please take her, save her. And we, we just got got introduced to hundreds and then thousands of kids across the country who needed these life-saving surgeries. And it, it ultimately just reached a point where it was like, maybe God and all these people and the universe itself is telling us that this is an important moment in our life where we need to like really pay attention to what's going on. Are we going to stay with the organization that we came here with who doesn't handle this work? Or are we going to step into this this moment that seems to be provided for us and so you did and you met all you met these doctors that were really helpful and um <laughs> and oh my gosh i mean the stories you write about in in your book um make me ask a few questions and so i'm going to ask you them how do you how do you stay engaged and not be overwhelmed or are you overwhelmed? And if you are, how do you stay engaged? Do you know what I mean? Oh my gosh, absolutely. I mean, we're, we're completely overwhelmed. Yeah. Um, I, I don't, and, and there will be friends and pastors and mental health care professionals who, who want to email after I say that and, and fix this for me. Right, right, I, right, right, right. I, I mean, conceptually, I know the way to live this life and not be overwhelmed. But experientially, the way I'm built, the way Jessica's built, like, we don't know how to not be all in, you right, know, I mean, right. um, which is not to say that we say yes to everything and everyone all the time, we do have boundaries, but our boundaries are pretty flimsy. And they're easily broken down by, by any number of, of sufferings that we might encounter here in a place like Iraq or, or Syria on, on a daily basis. So how do we stay engaged? Um, these are our people, man. Yes. Like this isn't, this isn't a project. This isn't a job somewhere along the way. This, this ceased to just be an interest or a hobby or a job or an adventure. And somehow this whole place just became our people. And I think they are our people in some ways more than we are their people, but we wow. continue to stand for them and with them, uh, even, even when they may not recognize us as one of them. You know, yeah. we, we are doing everything we can to align ourselves um, to, be, to be for them and, and to go deeper into conflict and deeper into their lives. And I mean, I guess ultimately it comes back to that, that living room in the, the very first time I visited, Iraq has ceased to be defined for us by its violence and its, its most salacious headline bits. It, it is the people, and, and that's how we stay engaged. I love that, Jeremy. And it reminds me, so one of my favorite things that I've heard you say is, I don't want to lean left or right. I want to lean in, right? I, I just, I love that. I, I don't know if you tweeted that or if you wrote that. I've, I've no idea where I heard that first, but, but that's, um, that seems like the prerequisite for, uh, having a people that were not originally your people become your people, right? So talk about preemptive love, talk about that phrase. Uh, you know, you also talk about loving first and asking questions later because it, 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 that that's not a slogan. That's not branding. That's deep heart DNA for you guys. My sense is. So talk about that for a little bit. Yeah, it actually, it absolutely is 
deep uh, and at the DNA level. When we moved to Iraq, I mean, the, a lot of the conversation surrounding the war and therefore the people and the politics and our soldier friends was this global war on terrorism yeah. was the dubious or, or, or legally at question issue of whether or not the Iraq war was executed legally or whether it constituted uh, a preemptive war, a preemptive strike against right. uh, the government and the people of Iraq. Um, the, the global war on terrorism was couched in terms of the coalition of the willing and I was a conservative from Texas. I, I mean, this that was my only way of understanding the world. And when I landed in Iraq and started to hear from the people themselves, not from news pundits or the other cable news network, that, that there was another way of experiencing my worldview, that, that the way I would project myself and live out my worldview into the world was actually a living out into other people's lives that had bearing on them, some for the positive, perhaps, and some for the negative. And so this idea of continuing to be a people of preemptive strikes just did not seem like it was the Jesus way that right. I had been raised on. Uh, and it, it became increasingly complicated, difficult for me to follow Jesus in the way of preemptive strikes. Yes. Um, and that's not strictly meant to be a statement about governments, because the truth was in my heart, I was a person of preemptive strikes. I, I understand the argument that, that nations need to behave differently, perhaps, than, than the faithful of, of any particular religious group. But, but that notwithstanding, in my heart, I was a person of preemptive strikes. I was one who sought to conquer and destroy others through my through my words, through my uh, my faith tradition, through any number of things. And so to land in Iraq and be surrounded by people on every side in, in many cases who walked with this swagger that said, shoot first, ask questions later. Yeah. Um, it seemed that maybe the most Jesus-like challenge I could give to myself and our community would be to ask this question. What if, what if we loved first and asked questions later? What if, what if we dared to strike first with love? Not, not because we don't think there's people out there who are going to hurt us or mean us ill. We actually know that, that that's a real thing. Um, but what if we were willing to put up with the cost of that because it's all going to be worth it? See, I, I, um, so I've been thinking about, um, the idea of nestedness, right? And so like I'm nested in my family, which is nested in my city, which is nested in my state, which is nested in my community, you know, country. And, and there's a way in which it's, as I hear you talking, mm -hmm. your nestedness got a whole lot bigger, um, and, and changed. Like, so you were a conservative yeah, religious evangelical kid that grew up in, in Texas and that, and that was the extent to which your nestedness went probably. Um, and then, but now as mm. you talk about your, um, your people, the idea of nestedness in the kingdom of Jesus seems to just keep expanding, you know? And so, um, uh, to me, that's what I see Jesus doing with people. <laughs> it's like, like, inviting people to see our, our nestedness in, in larger and larger ways, uh, in just ever expansive ways. I like um, that. Well, that's, that's, that's how I interpret some of what you're doing. Uh, and so it's beautiful. And so you did, you have done heart surgeries for, um, a while, but as, but as time went on, I think, um, and as these people became your people more and more, you, you, you really started to see, we don't want to be a relief organization that that drops in and then drops out. We want to we want to be here for the long haul. Uh, we want to be on the front lines of relief. We want to be about wholeness. Um, uh, we want to be about micro loans. We want to be a, 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 about really walking alongside people for shalom, right? And so talk talk about that journey if you would. Yeah, I think the 
I think it really goes back more than anything to the rise of ISIS. Um, because up until that point, we were giving all that we had to heart surgery for children in Iraq. We were, we were not plopping in and plopping out. I mean, this was our home and we were committed to it for the long haul, but, um, you know, but our work had, even though our work had taken us to a, a significant place geographically, we were working north to south, east to west, across every major sectarian, ethnic, geographic, political, and tribal and religious line in Iraq, which is which is hard for an American to understand. But I can just say, in this country, in Iraq. It's a remarkable thing. It's not done. It, it is just rarely done that you find business people or aid people or missionary people or whatever, even Iraqis themselves, who have that much of a of a reach and a connectedness across all the various parts and histories and stories of the country. So when ISIS came in in such a strong way in 2013 and then became a household name in 2014, we already had put in eight years of, yeah. uh, of going deep with the people in so many different places. And so when, when magazines in America are running headlines with Iraq on fire and it says the end of Iraq, you know, because ISIS has, has gone on this wild rampage, overrun a third of the country, occupies massive territory and has killed tens of thousands of people. And it looks like they're just going to continue rolling on unabated. We, categorically rejected that we we did not believe for one second that that was true yeah and because we weren't just doing meta-analysis on the news itself we were we were engaged with the tribal leaders we were talking to people in these communities who were living under isis we were talking to the troops who would go out and fight tooth and nail life and death against isis and we took all the money in the bank and split it to the middle of the table and bet on the future of Iraq and its people and said, heart surgery isn't what they need right now. People are being displaced from their homes by the millions and people need food, water, shelter, clothes, medicine, just to stay alive. So are we going to sit on our hands and say we were a heart surgery organization in what might prove to be one of the most insane humanitarian crises of my lifetime? Or are we going to pivot and show up and do whatever is asked of us for the people who need it most. And so we really overnight just retooled and continued to put our emphasis on this posture of I, this posture of preemptive love rather than any specific programming modality yeah. through yeah. which it had to play itself out. And so the real program for us, the real, the real mission is preemptive love itself. It's never been about one specific way that people ask us to show up. We, we show up however we're asked to show up. If we can, if we can do it well. So, um, an hour ago, well, an hour before we started the conversation, uh, you, you know, you sent me a little message. Hey, just got back from West Mosul, uh, delivering uh, some goods there. And, and I had seen, uh, a, I think an Instagram post, where you talked about you were you were delivering uh, goods to people in West Mosul and you felt afraid, um, and it was such a poignant moment because I think sometimes we can look at Jeremy Courtney or Jane Claiborne or whoever and just say, well, they must be made of sterner stuff than I am, uh, because they're you know they are traveling north to south and east east to west in these crazy countries. So when you talked about number one, delivering these goods, and number two, feeling afraid. Um, can you get us into a little bit of the, uh, um, tell us that that part of the story, because I think it's so important to hear. Uh, preemptive love is, is, is scary. Yeah, absolutely. I think this started to become obvious to me in 2015, when we had just seen this little boy in a red shirt wash up on the shore of yeah. Turkey yeah. from Syria, and the world screamed and rended its garments and said, how in God's name can we let this happen on our, our watch? This is our world, and we are 
letting dead babies wash ashore as they flee conflict. And we are nowhere on this. And every paper in the country ran Alon Curdy's photo. And we all had rallies and waved flags and said, we will welcome refugees. We will be a loving, kind, hospitable people. And then a, a month or maybe two or three months later in Paris, this terror attack happened in the city of love, mm. a city that, that many of us had walked through. Many of us know either through movies or through our honeymoon or through some backpacking experience after college. And it, it hit home suddenly terrorism and violence and the, the very, um, dubious allegations and stories that somehow this links back cleanly to Syria, um, suddenly made us feel afraid. Yeah. And in America, at least in American politics and American pews at that time, it seemed that people, I mean, the sea was parted and people ran to one side of a spectrum or another. Yes. And the two spectrums were more or less, why are you such fear mongering people that you would be hard hearted and callous and not welcome these people into your lives and into your home? And on the other hand, it would be, why are you such idiots that you would be naive to the real uh, threat of radical Islamic extremism and refugees themselves and why can't you see the holes in our vetting process and why are you shaming me with words like fear um, and hate and bigotry when I'm not any of those things I'm smart yeah and and we were just we were talking past each other yes and I think in a lot of I, I, I didn't know, I don't know a way out other than to stop, to stop pitting these two extremes against each other as though that's the real conversation. Yes. Um, so I, I, I took to, I think I wrote a post for the Washington Post asked me to write something in response to Paris and the headline and the, the body of the article was basically to say, the world is scary as hell, love anyway. Yeah. And it it resonated with a lot of people because a lot of the other articles that were coming out were at the polls. They were either uh, uh, on the fear, cautionary side, or they were on the be loving, be welcoming side. And I I just wanted to have everyone take a breath and, and try and say, you know what? These things, if we if we attempt to be hospitable, if we open up ourselves to the vulnerable, if we give ourselves away to the poor, if we go into the hard places where bombs are still falling and snipers are still sniping, these are scary things. So there's no use denying the fear. There's no use um, shaming each other. We We would do a lot better to acknowledge the fear that we all feel and then try to find rubrics or tools or models for living that allow us to live well in the face of fear. Yes. Oh, um, I just was listening to this uh, podcast from this Irish theologian. And he, he, he brings up uh, this Japanese word, mu, M-U. And it essentially means it, it's, it's the answer the Japanese give when they want a better question. When, when the truth of the answer is, is way too big for the smallness of the question. You know what I mean? Like, um, and, and, and as you're talking, yeah, right. Isn't that beautiful? And as you're talking like that, uh, so, uh, we will post your Washington post article on the show notes for the, for the podcast. So, um, all the folks can uh, read it, but that's what I, that's what I see you doing. Um, in this, um, l- love anyway, the world is scary and people aren't idiots and people aren't, totally naive there, there, there is a third way to understand each other through this and that's the only way we're going to get through um gosh i love it um so okay jeremy um you're you're a follower of jesus where is jesus in the midst of pain and suffering and i, I realize that's a meta 
theological question, but I also feel like it's so important. Um, and I'd love to hear your answer on it. I mean, Jesus is in West Mosul right now, trapped under ISIS control with airstrikes falling from above with his leg trapped underneath a big pile of rubble, sending me tweets saying there's 90 people trapped in this house and we can't get out. Please send someone to save us. Yeah. And if we take that in, right? So people are listening all over Ireland, United States. Um, what do we do with that tweet from Jesus? Man, I don't know. You know what I mean? It's, haunt, it's, it's haunted me all day. Ugh. I mean, I literally have exact GPS coordinates, and I, I don't know how to get there. I don't know how to get to Jesus today. And that's not the only place he is, but I'm certain he's there. Yes. Yes. Um. So in in the middle of that, can I can I pivot and ask a few sort of these are like bullet point questions. Answer them, you know, as quickly as you can. Is you know, but like, um, who who inspires you? Oh man, so many friends and uh, people in this in this work and in this journey. But um, I mean, truly, my wife has been an amazing inspiration. Sometimes steps ahead of me, calling me forward. Sometimes behind me, pushing me out the door. Always beside me, saying, "Let's keep going." Um, she's she's amazing and she has the ability to take deeper breaths and, and swim deeper into the thick of it sometimes than I do. And, uh, she's a more private person and not especially taken with social media disclosures and stages. Yeah. And so she's not, uh, she doesn't always have kind of the people don't always know her role in, in all the beautiful things that, that take place in our work across these countries, but she's absolutely an inspiration. Yeah. Beautiful. Uh, what makes you laugh? All kinds of things. I laugh very easily <laughs> and I try to laugh big and hard. Um, you know, I mean, I like silly movies with my kids. We, we are certainly cut-ups in the office. I sing along to everything at the top of my lungs. We laugh and play hard here as well. That's sweet. Um, what recharges you? Um, it's kind of a combination of things. I mean, I think kind of back to the, the conversation about, um, I can't remember the word you used, but persisting in the face of, of trauma or conflict or whatever. Yeah. Um, it, it is recharging to me to just have these conversations. Honestly, this is, this is my therapy, uh, and, and any number of other friends that I get to spend time with just, just talking it out, you know, just offloading some of this. It's like wringing out the sponge. I, I just need to be able to wring out my sponge somewhere on someone yeah. with someone. Yeah. And then, and then my sponge has the ability to go back in and absorb some more pain and suffering. But but in some way, whether it's a formal setting or a friendly setting, I need to be able to wring out that sponge in a relational way, and that that's recharging. And then the other side of me, I'm kind of an ambivert in some ways, is I, I need to have some downtime at the end of the night. You know, if if Jess goes to bed at 9, you know, I may yeah. only need to be up till 11. But if she stays up till 1, then I'm, I'm staying up till 2 or 3 because I have to have some time at the end of the day to just be completely alone. Yeah. Oh, man. Um, my last question in this section, I, I feel like it's redundant, but I'll, I'll, I'll ask it anyway. Um, uh, what makes you weep? Oh, man. I'm actually, I'm, I might even be a, a more ready crier than I am uh, an easy laugher. I, I cry at uh, toilet paper commercials. <laughs> Um, 
certainly anything where a little girl is growing up to be a woman and leave her dad and leave her family that that'll get me every time um or yesterday in in the thick of it with bombs going off a couple streets away and gunshots within feet of where I was and snipers firing on our position and just being with people for whom there is no exit visa, you know, that there yeah. is no way out. Um, it, it's kind of remarkable what money and influence and, and all these things that I have can allow me to, to be a, a trauma tourist in some ways. I can go into these places and, and see hard things, but I, I have a way out, you know, and and a lot of them don't. And so that's uh, the people here make me weep for joy and, and the horrible things that they have to endure certainly make me weep on their behalf. Unbelievable. Um, and I, I, I um, so five minutes ago when you said, and then I, I went to these four questions, but, but I want to go back for a second. Um, and, and maybe I, I need to, maybe I need to ring out my sponge. <laughs> I don't know. Bring um, it. Um, I can't. I have the GPS coordinates. I know where Jesus is. I can't get to him. Um, when you said that, something in me like um, shimmered or broke or. Um, so can we talk just for two more minutes about that? Mm. Um, because I do think Jesus is everywhere. I think he beats us everywhere. We don't bring him anywhere. We, we simply find him and join him, um, where he's trapped, uh, where he's working. And, um, so, you know, Jeremy, I live in Minnesota. I work in a church. Um, and, um, I live in a suburb. I mean, I'm looking at, you know, these houses, tan houses in my suburb out my window right now. And I know Jesus is in those houses trapped in, in, in mm -hmm. places too. I mean, and that doesn't, that doesn't make any work less important. Um, you know, a fellow, so to a fellow Jesus follower, what would you say to someone that's working in a very different setting than you are, but in some ways the same? And what would you say to other people that want to get there, but we don't know how to get there today? Um, Right? I mean, what would you say? Yeah, um, I think it's why it's important to establish that the harder decision was not moving into the war zone. The harder decision was choosing to take one step toward Muslims on September 12th, 2001. Yes, yes, yes. Um, it's, only, it's only when you look back over the course of the last 15 years that you can kind of see the scope in my life of, of how all those little individual one steps at a time culminate in us being in West Mosul, um, with, with bombs falling and snipers shooting at us. That's, that's, that's not something that gets microwaved, you know, that's, right, that's right. the culmination of, uh, a lot of unremarkable paperwork and spreadsheets and, completely mundane, unreportable acts over the last 15 years. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think that's it's such an important thing for me, discipline for me to keep reminding my friends about is, yeah, there is, I, I get it, there's a certain kind of, uh, whatever, there's a certain kind of swagger attached or attributed to the work we do. and and the branding that we've chosen to put around it and all that. Um, but, but your metaphor about people being trapped in the suburbs is absolutely accurate. And it's, it's for those who have eyes to see that, you know, that, that suburban work takes bravery. That suburban work is actually in many ways, I believe a harder kind of work. And truly, I mean this to my core. It yeah. scares me more than West Mosul scares me. It's, it scares me at an existential level yeah. because I actually am fairly confident that if I get kidnapped or killed 
in West Mosul when I go back in, I will probably go down a hero for it. Yeah. And my legacy will be secured. My my postmortem is unlikely to to be unfavorable to me. Um, therefore, at the ego level, the only thing I really risk is death. Yeah. But in the suburbs, so to speak, in in let's just call it what the life that that most of us end up living that's not in a war zone, um, we still have huge work to do. And I don't think bravery should be measured by bombs and bullets. Bravery would have not given us the the political cycle that we just saw over the last year, year and a half. Right. True, true bravery would have led us to a different place. True, true bravery would have led to different kinds of conversations about grabbing women by the genitals. True bravery would lead to a different kind of race relations in America. True bravery would would have us having a different conversation with the people who occupied our land before the white Europeans showed up. Yes. And so, so there is some heroic, brave work that needs to be done in America. What keeps us from doing that is this false idea that that which constitutes good, brave work is, is headline newsmaking, is, right. is bombs and bullets and kidnapping. And so we talk ourselves out of doing the, the brave thing that is demanded of us. And, and I think in part it's because we're actually more afraid of damage to ego than we are of loss of life and limb. Yeah. And, and my ego is very safe in this work because I can die and I'm going to be okay at the ego level. You can stick your nose out on something from the pulpit and your ego could be shattered for it. You could be completely under attack with almost no one to come and rescue you out of your ego trap that you found yourself yeah, in yeah. where your, your, your reputation is under attack and your legacy is under attack. And that's, that's the hard work, um, not the bombs and bullet stuff. Hmm. Um, well, I just want to say thank you. <laughs> thank you for all of that. Um, and it makes me feel in it together in the work that you do and the work that I do. And it really does. Um, and I think that takes an expansive view. Um, so thank you for offering that Jeremy for, for me. Thank you so much. Um, that's a big deal. Um, thank you. Whew. Pleasure. Um, <laughs> I love the, the horns honking in the background. I can serve, I mean, so, um, <laughs> this, Maybe I didn't make it clear to those of you who are listening to me. Jeremy is in Iraq right now. <laughs> like that's where he is. He is. That's where he lives. That's where he is. And so he's in his little offices. So it's just fascinating. Um, so I want to wrap up. We're out of time. Um, but I want to list for for people that are saying like that are responding and saying yes is. So I will list the preemptive love website on the show notes, Jeremy. Um, can we give financially? What's, I mean, what's, what's a way we can help? Yeah. So, um, we are in truly dire need of help with regard to our work in West Mosul right now. We haven't talked a lot about Syria, but we're in Syria. We're doing some solid work there and thankfully it's well-funded. The, the work in Mosul, uh, for whatever reason, hasn't had as much support. And, and people are completely trapped under ISIS right now. And I say this humbly, but in all truthfulness, we are, according to the top military generals, according to the top government officials, according to the local people themselves, we are the only aid organization in the entire world who has reached them. I, I can't get my mind around that. How is it that this relatively young, small, upstart group of clueless people has figured out how to get to the people who need it most when all the big players are sitting on the periphery saying, y'all come out. If you can make it to the sidelines, we're here waiting for you. And, and they are helping people. Absolutely. But there are so many more tens and hundreds of thousands of people that are still inside Mosul yeah. who need our help. And, and so I guess I just want to say like, not all aid is created equal. Yeah. And not not all Mosul is Mosul is Mosul. There we are in the inner neighborhoods 
where bombs are still falling. And we there's just no one else operating anywhere near where we are. So we need we need help. We're going back in and we're going back in and we're going back in until our machetes have dulled from cutting down a path big enough for the big organizations to come in behind us. Um, uh, so we need that help and that can be done at preemptivelove.org online. Um, and I'll go even further to say this is, we helped make this mess in Iraq and Syria. We are not alone to blame by any means. Um, but we contributed as Americans, uh, we contributed as Christians, we contributed with our bigotry, we contributed with our foreign policy. And I, I feel a strong sense of conviction that we need to stick with it and be in it for the long haul. And so when you talk about rooting out terrorism on the one hand, you, you really have to talk about rebuilding on the other hand and empowering people to put their lives back together. And yeah. so um, the, the single best gift that anyone could make would be a monthly sponsorship of any amount because we, this is soon going to not be headline news anymore. We're all going to move on in a year or so after we're not talking about ISIS anymore. And the people of Iraq are going to still need to rebuild and, and they're going to need our help for that. And so those who join us on the front lines as monthly sponsors are, are going to help us continue this work long after the media moves on. Beautiful. So we will include uh, the link you just said at preemptivelove.org, right? Preemptivelove.org? Preemptivelove.org. No dash between the okay. E's. No dash. Preemptivelove.org. We'll include that in the show notes. But I encourage all of you to give. Uh, become monthly sponsors. Um, my wife and I are talking about, um, Jeremy, what we're doing. We've been talking about it for a couple of months now. Uh, or what we will do, um, because this is just, uh, this is huge. And I, and I agree, we can be a part of the restoring. Uh, and, and, um, and there's lots of ways to do that. We can, we can give financially. Uh, so, um, okay. Last question, Jeremy, I know you, you gotta go. I gotta go. Is there anything you wished I would have asked you, uh, that I didn't, that you would like to say? No, man, I'm good. It's been an honor hanging out with you. Well, uh, the honor, the pleasure is mine. Thank you so much for carving out time. Uh, I, I look forward to putting this out there into the world and seeing what happens. Um, so thanks, Jeremy. Man, I really appreciate it. Um, I just feel like any words that I might say are fumbling, but I really appreciate the work that you do and the humility that you carry with it. Um, I don't get the sense of your some lone ranger out there that's, you know, <laughs> although I'm sure you're a human being with all kinds of ego too which you even talked about, which I appreciate. But thank you for the humility with, with which you carry your call. It's a big deal. Thank you. Thanks, brother. Let's do it again. Okay, man. Peace. See ya. Hey, everybody. I'm Steve Weens, and this is my podcast where I explore humanity, spirituality, and mystery one word at a time. For more about my work, my writing, my preaching, my books, and all that good stuff, head on over to steveweens.com.